Okay. Well, morning. So as Steve said, I've worked with him for about 20 years. So I started working with Steve when I was about eight years old. I just want you to know, Steve was 45 at the time. And uh, it's great to be with you. Um, right, it's a beautiful day outside, everybody. But I'm going to teach about the next three and a half hours, so you're going to miss most of that, I'm afraid. So, no, about half an hour. Uh, if you've got a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 2, please. It's going to come up on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. But you want to engage with this passage. We're looking at the Easter story, particularly we're talking about the cross and what Jesus has done on the cross. And we're going to jump straight in. And I'm going to work you pretty hard today in terms of passages, okay? I hope that's okay. Colossians 2, verse 13 says this. When you were dead in your sins... And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you're traveling somewhere the place you, the destination is, you're familiar with the destination, but the route, you're doing a new route, yeah? So you're used to going this way, and for whatever reason, you're coming from the other way, yeah? And on this occasion, because you're on a new route, the landmarks are different, everything's a bit different, and it's a bit more disorienting, yeah? Do you know what I'm talking about? This happened to me a few years ago. I've got two brothers. It was at my eldest brother's wedding. Uh, he got married in East London, which is north of the river on the dark side, everybody, okay? We've heard of that place, just don't go there, okay? He got married there, we found the church, that was all okay, they had the wedding there and they had the the reception there, that was all fine. But after the reception, I was asked to go to my now sister-in-law's house to pick up some stuff, okay? So I drove over there, found her house, and then I had to drive back to the church I had just been at for the last six hours. Could I find this church on the way back? Like, I'm driving round and round and round East London trying to find this mysterious church that seems to have been lifted and moved somewhere else. It's like the Bermuda Triangle of East London. Literally, I drove around East London for four to five days looking for that church, okay? No, not four to five days, but quite a long time. I'm completely lost because I'm coming from a different angle. Now, what we're doing in this little mini-series is we want to look at the cross from different angles, cultural angles. And some of them are going to be really familiar to you, and some of them are going to be a little bit unfamiliar. But here's the great thing about a diverse church. Because we are diverse, when we embrace that, we see more of the gospel together than we do on our own. Okay? So last Sunday, if you were here, Andrew brilliantly spoke. If you didn't hear that message, you need to listen to that message uh, on the issue of shame and how the cross is the answer to our shame. Okay? Sin originates in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sin, right? Out of that sin, it gives birth to shame. So what happens? Adam and Eve suddenly becomes worried and they hide, it says, when God comes looking for them. They hide because they are shameful. And at the cross, Jesus, who is the name above all names, the name of the highest honor, steps down into our place, becomes shamed for us, so that we who carry shame, which is all of us before the cross, are lifted out of our shame. And there's a transaction of honor and shame. And if you come from that background, cultural background that sees the world through the lens of shame and honor, that will be a very familiar perspective to you on the cross. This Friday, Good Friday, we're going to talk about Jesus being a substitute. We're going to talk about guilt and innocence. If you're from a Western background like me, this is a more familiar perspective on the cross. We talk in the West a lot about that we're guilty, 
before Jesus and before God, and God is our judge. And we often use a law court picture. You ever heard the gospel talked about in legal terms? Yeah, we like, we're in the dock. We are guilty. We needed someone to pay the penalty. God pays our penalty, so we go free. And we quote Romans 8, verse 1, which is right. There's now no condemnation because we are legally justified and free. And we will look at it from that perspective. Today, we're going to talk about a slightly different perspective, which again, for some of us, will be uh, more familiar. We're going to talk about the fact that the cross is the ultimate victory over evil. Jesus is the victor. Okay? The concept is that we live in a spiritual battle and the cross is the decisive blow against evil in the battle. Ephesians 6, the Bible would absolutely bear this out, by the way. Ephesians 6 says this. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. For some of us, our cultural background, this would be familiar territory, right? That we've been brought up aware of that there is an unseen world, spiritual world, and there are hostile, evil powers in the spiritual world. The Bible talks about them being demonic powers. There's the devil and demonic powers. In other words, it means that we are in a battle as Christians, a spiritual battle. Now, what does that mean? It means that when you look at the world in that way, the theme of power and the theme of fear are prevalent for you. They're emphasized for you. The reason being this is because we are in a spiritual battle Therefore, unless I have a victor on my side who is more powerful, and that's obviously who we're going to talk about Jesus today, but unless I have that, I live in anxiety and in fear of what these hostile spiritual forces are going to do to my life and to my life circumstances, right? And we see the world that way. Praise God. The cross deals with every issue of sin. It deals with shame. It deals with guilt. We're going to talk about Friday. And it deals with the issue of fear. The cross deals with the issue of fear. Jesus' victory means that we get free of fear. Before sin enters the world in Genesis, there is no fear. It doesn't exist. Okay? So when God walks in the garden, Adam you know, happily and in harmony with God walks with him. Then when sin comes into the world and Adam sins, what happens? God comes walking. God calls Adam's name. And what is Adam's response? He's aware. He's naked. He covers because he's guilty. He hides. But he says, I heard you coming, God, and I was afraid. That is the first time in history that the word afraid or the mention of fear is ever used because sin births fear into our experience and into our world. Now notice this. Instantly, fear is birthed, and fear makes Adam live in a way that he would never have lived before, right? And that is what fear does. Right at the beginning, you see him instantly. Fear causes us to act in ways that we would never normally act in. Let me give you a silly example of this. This is a true story, okay? Not that any of my other stories aren't true, but this is true as well, okay? When I was a kid, I got home from school one day early with my older brother, David, and he's guilty for this because he should have advised me better. My mum is not home. So we need to get in the house. What do we do? Two options. One is we wait for my mum to come home. How many of you think I chose option A? Okay. 
No, it would be a rubbish story. Option B is, obviously, the rational normal thing is we take it in turns to try and bust down the front door. That's the option we chose. I don't know what I was thinking, I wasn't thinking. I'd obviously watched too much TV about people breaking down doors. So there's a front path at my parents' house. Steve and I have just been there just recently, same house. And basically, we took it in turns, this is a complete, to run down the path and throw ourselves up against the front door like that. Bam! And then my brother did it, and then I did it, and we, we didn't even think. We'd not one moment did we think this was a bad idea. I, this is honestly the truth. Until... Yours truly, the younger brother, puts his elbow through one of the panes of glass. It's okay, I was all right, I want you to know, okay? But as soon as my elbow entered through the glass, I'm like, I am dead. They're going to kill me, right? So anyway, we've, we've broken the door, so we may as well go in. So we open, get our hands in, we open a lock, we go in, and we wait for my mum to come home, right? Literally, it's Genesis 3, Okay. I hear the car on the drive. It's like, I heard you coming and I was afraid. What do you think I did? It's true. This is completely true. What do you think I did? I hid, right? I hid. That's what I did. But I didn't hide anywhere good. I didn't go like to the loft or to the garden or the woods or get on a train to Scunthorpe. I didn't do anything clever. I hid behind a single chair in the lounge like this thinking that it could be days and days of my parents searching the house, looking for me, and they'd never discover me. That's what I did. That is what fear does. Fear makes us act in ways that we wouldn't normally act in. It enslaves us and wants to control us. Think of your life as a house, okay? Jesus says in a story, doesn't he say, there's two builders, one builds on rock, one builds on sand. It's not a story about building or houses. It's really a story about our lives, Okay? He says there's ways of constructing your house. Now, think of your life as a house for a minute. There's a knock at the door of your house, okay? Normally people come about 6.30, don't they? That kind of slightly annoying time. Well, on the knock on the door, this time you open the door and it is called an anxiety is at your door, right? Anxiety knocks on all of our doors. Now, anxiety is knocked on your door that day. Now, if you open the door and you let anxiety in, what does anxiety do? Anxiety will, will probably sit down, will take root, become your lodger, and burst and grows into fully-fledged fear. When fear lives in your life and takes root and residency in your life, it does three things. First of all, it wants to restrict you. Fear will literally tie you to your chair so that when an opportunity in life comes or a possibility or a thing that you should do, maybe something you should say, someone you should challenge, but a place where it involves you risking a little bit, you will never take the step because fear is saying, what happens if it goes wrong? And it restricts you, right? That's what fear does when it roots in your life. Fear wants to rob you of joy. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But it will rob you of joy. And fear, like all bad companions, will lead you to meet some other bad companions. Fear is a controlling character in our lives. So fear will introduce you to all sorts of other sins or other sorts of bad habits. If I'm fearful, for example, about money, what will fear stop me from doing? Well, fear will stop me ever from being generous with my money because I'm fearful about what will happen if I ever was to give any of this away. Fear will cause me often to be greedy or to hoard or maybe in my career to strive to earn more and more and more because I have to have more money to somehow deal with a sense of insecurity and fear in my own heart about what happens if I ever don't have enough. Fear wants to control us and enslave us 
but that the cross, because Jesus is the victor, he wants to liberate us from anything that holds us and wants to deliver us out of slavery, out of fear. That's why the cross is so significant when it comes to the issue of fear. You see this in the Old Testament. Israel, this is like a mirror of what Jesus is going to do. Israel are held in Egypt and they are what in Egypt? Slaves. They are slaves. And Israel, through Moses, uh, through God, through Moses, comes to liberate them and deliver them out of slavery into a new land. Through the cross, Jesus comes to liberate us out of slavery into a new life. And the cross, what was birthed in, in the Garden of Eden when Eve and Adam sin, the victory of the cross is predicted in a fairly obscure way at the beginning also in Genesis 3. Let me just read you this. Just out of interest, here's what it says. Genesis 3, this is when the curse of sin is announced and God speaks to Satan and says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, Jesus. He's talking about Jesus, Eve's offspring. Jesus will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That is a prediction, a prophetic prediction of what the cross will be. That one day, even though the curse of sin has been announced here, there will be an answer to the issue of sin and it will be Jesus who will crush the head of the serpent. In other words, will deal with the accusation of the enemy. Jesus is the victor. I want to talk about three ways in which the cross frees us from fear. You can probably think of others, but I want to talk about three, okay? The first one is this. Jesus' victory on the cross means I no longer have to live in fear in terms of my relationship with God. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't fear God in terms of honoring him, but I don't have to live in fear that God is angry with me and he's going to be unpredictable in the way he deals with me. Why did Adam hide? He hid, surely, because suddenly he's aware he sinned and he's fearful about, firstly, now what God thinks about him. Secondly, what God is going to do to him. Now, if you know in your heart that basically you are fearful that God is constantly displeased with you, that's kind of what you carry. In your, when you think about God, you think about God being angry with you. And he's displeased and he's serious, and he's, you will live your life probably in one of two ways. Both of which you see, you know in the story in the Gospels where Jesus tells about, the, we often call it the prodigal son, but it's the story of two sons. The younger son who leaves home, he displays both these ways of living. What does he do first? First of all this, he says, I want to go, I want to rebel, I take my share, and he goes. If you are Basically, if you feel that God is angry with you, that's what you think. You may well just leave. You'll, you'll get away from church, get away from Christians, leave your faith, and you'll try and get away from God as far as possible. And some of us in the room have lived like that. And maybe you're coming back from that now, I don't know. But you'll just try and get away because it's too uncomfortable to live that near. But the other way, which is maybe more prevalent in churches, is this. You do the other thing, which he does as well, is the younger son eventually comes back. But when he comes back, what does he say? He says, I'm not, I can't be a son anymore, so I will be a what? I'll be a servant. In other words, I will come back and I will work in my father's house. I will earn my way into your good books. 
When we live in fear of God, we think God's angry with us, we'll either run away or we'll try and walk close to God, but in a remarkably legalistic way, where we go, I'm going to create some religious rules. If I tick them all off, if I turn up at church, I may not turn up on church on time, but at least I turn up on church. Okay, I go to group, I serve, I give a bit of money, I I'll, I'll do all the right things and then maybe I will appease him and he won't be angry with me anymore. And that's how we live. There is no joy in that. We will live in one of two ways and the cross is the answer to both issues. And the reason the cross is the answer in terms of our relationship to God is because at the cross, the penalty that was due me and due for my rebellion is paid by Jesus. So I should be scared of God, okay? But the wrath which was due for my penalty has been poured out on another, literally emptied on Jesus. So therefore, I get to come home without any fear. Let's take you back to that passage we read right at the start, Colossians 2. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Now listen, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away and nailed it to the cross. I love this picture, okay? Imagine you're at school and you're in the classroom and basically your name is written on the board. Anybody ever had their name written on the board? Tibbet had his name written on the board. I've had my name written on the board. And there's basically the things that you get wrong where you did not live up to the standard, right? Your name is written. Well, this picture here is like not just your name. It's all the ways that you have not lived up to God's standards. Written, written, written. Here's a document that just shows every way that you have fallen short. That therefore, if you were to come back to God, you deserve judgment, okay? Now at the cross, what he's saying is, is that document is taken, and as Jesus is nailed to the cross, that document is nailed as well. And the penalty that was mine and yours is poured out. The wrath of God on our sin is poured out all on God. It's like a bucket that has been completely emptied on Jesus. And John Stott says this. I love this phrase. He says, the debt is paid and the document is destroyed. That's what Colossians 2 say. The debt's paid, the document is destroyed. What does that mean? It means... I don't have to live in fear that God is angry with me. I can come home without fear anymore. Right? Not just that, okay? Even better than that. The cross is not just the mechanism by which I get to come home. The cross is the demonstration that God intends to do me good and wants me and loves me. Okay? It is the ultimate demonstration, not of a begrudging God who's like, oh, I suppose I could have him back. It's of a God who's for me and not against me. Some of us, we're Christians and we know we're forgiven, but still we feel like, oh, I don't know if I can come to God. But the cross, when you understand it, is the demonstration of God's desire to have you. And he's not just not angry with you anymore. He's for you. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I think this is incredible when you think about it. Romans 8 says this, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. If he didn't spare Jesus, surely God's going to do all the things he promises to do. That's what it's saying. It's like, it's like saying, 
If you bought a house for a million pounds and you put a down payment of 980,000 pounds down, right? It is completely unthinkable that you are not going to pay the last tiny little bit to do everything else and own the whole deal, right? There's no way you're going to make a down payment like that. Well, Romans 8 is saying God has made the ultimate down payment. There is, it is unthinkable, Paul is saying, that he's not going to follow through and be as good as he says he is. It means I'm not, I don't have to live in fear that my life is at the beck and call of circumstances or fate. Or fate. God's in control. I believe he's for me, with me. And if you read the New Testament, you read the New Testament, the atmosphere of the New Testament is all about joyful confidence. He's on our side. We're more than conquerors. He gives us the victory. It's all basic. It's not like, it's not being triumphalistic. It's saying God is for me. Therefore, whatever comes my way, I know he's for me and beside me and with me. Romans 8, 14. I love this verse as well. For those of you who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. You don't have to go back to fear in any way. You're not a slave anymore. You don't have to live in fear. Rather, the spirit received brought about your adoption to sonship. It's like, bam. That's just incredible good news, everybody. I'm not a hired hand. I'm a son. So my relationship with God completely changes because he's the victor. Okay? Secondly, this. Because of the cross, I don't have to be afraid of the devil or demonic powers. Okay? As we've seen, Ephesians 6 says they are real. There is a supernatural enemy and there is a battle. The Bible describes the devil as the deceiver, the accuser, the god of this age, an adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion. So it's real. He's real. But... Critically this, the cross demonstrates that I do not have to live in fear because Satan and his demonic powers are not in charge of my life. Colossians 2, we've already read it, but I'm going to just take you the next step. He forgave us our sins, cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, taken it away, and nailed it to the cross, okay? Now, because that is answered, because the debt that was mine, because I was guilty, is now answered, says this, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. My forgiveness, Jesus' way of taking our penalty means that now Satan and his demonic powers are disarmed. The language there is like, like of an ancient battle, okay? King goes out of his army, goes to fight another king and his army. The victorious side would disarm the defeated army, take away their weapons, and chain them up and bring them back to the victor's city, into Rome or somewhere like that, okay? And they would parade them through the city disarmed. The king would be at the back, yeah, the, the defeated king who would then be murdered and executed at the end of it. It was all pretty gory. What were they doing? What they're doing is they were making a public spectacle of the defeated armies because they wanted to show the whole city, you don't need to be scared of them anymore. They are completely disarmed. They are bankrupt of any power now, and we are totally victorious. That's what they were doing. Now, that's the language he's using. He's saying, because of the cross, now Satan is completely bankrupt of power. That's what it's saying. You don't need to live in fear. It's not that Satan isn't real. It's just that his power has been drawn. 
Now, what was the one weapon? In fact, it says it's literally the weapon has been stripped from his hand. What's the one weapon that Satan really had? The one weapon he really had was called accusation. He's the accuser. Okay? Now, an accusation has power, doesn't it, when there's truth in it? So, if Charles stole my car, which he did, no, he didn't really, okay? But let's say he did, right? And I accused him publicly at the service of him stealing my car. There would be power in that because there might be truth in it. There's no truth in it, okay? But let's just say, right? Now, if it's completely shown to be a ridiculous thing, there's no, there's no truth in it, the accusation has no power. It might be uncomfortable, but it's completely devoid of any power because there's no truth in it. What was Satan's accusation to you? That you're a sinner, that you're guilty, therefore you deserve judgment and death. That was all true before the cross. But because the document is nailed to the cross, because the penalty is poured out on another, the accusation has no power anymore. That's why he's saying it's a public spectacle now. And it looked like defeat, but the cross was victory. Jesus is the victor. So we don't have to live in fear of demonic power or the devil anymore. Now, interestingly this, note this. Okay, that means when it comes to prayer and spiritual warfare, our role is to stand firm. Okay? We don't have to be like taking ground. It's literally you resist the devil. It says, James, Ephesians 6, stand firm. Take your stand. stance against the enemy's uh, schemes. That's what the New Testament talks about. Mark 3, okay? Mark 3 is a passage where they accuse Jesus of being Beelzebub and they say, how, you know, you're casting out demons. How can you do that? And Jesus says, how can Satan cast out Satan? And then he says this quite strange phrase. He says, if you want to rob the strong man, talking about the devil, you have to bind him up first, then you can rob the house. Now, sometimes we take that and think every time we pray into a spiritual scenario where we think there's an evil or demonic spirit, we have to bind the strong man, right? You may have heard people pray that. You may have even prayed that yourself. I don't think that's what Mark 3 is saying. Mark 3 is a reference to saying, at the cross, the strong man was bound. Once and for all, Jesus has said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bind him. He's been disarmed, Okay, so we stand firm, we resist because his accusations, although painful to us and difficult for us and troubling to us, in the end, there's no power. And he does not hold the keys to the circumstances of your life, Jesus does. So we don't have to be fearful anymore. Here's the third way. I don't have to be fearful anymore of death when it comes because Jesus is the victor. We live in a Western world not all of us have lived, grown up here, but in the Western world, we pretend that death doesn't exist. So we're shocked when it doesn't happen, when it happens to us, right? Woody Allen once said, I don't mind the thought of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens, right? And that sums up a lot of the kind of Western attitude to death. Now, we're scared of death. And in some senses, we should be scared of death because death, unless the cross is what it is, leads us to standing before God and judgment. There is something very scary about that. So is the doorway to judgment before the cross, okay, if we don't know Jesus. But because of the cross, because Jesus is the victor, death now is the doorway to a homecoming. Amen? It's a, it's a doorway now. It, we're not going to walk into judgment. We're going to walk into a doorway to a homecoming to know God. Jesus is the victor. 
Donald Gray Barnhouse, I love this story, some of you might have heard this, was a famous Presbyterian preacher in Philadelphia. And there's a story about him where he's, sadly his first wife died. And the story is that they were at the funeral and as they were walking away from the funeral, uh, they were walking along the road and one of his daughters said to him, Dad, why did mum have to die? And as he said it, this, this, this truck drove past and cast a shadow over them as, as they were walking along the, the pavement. And he turns to his daughter and he says, would you rather be run over by the truck or by the shadow? Which would you rather? And she said, I'd rather be run over by the shadow because there's no pain in the shadow. There's no power in the shadow. And he says to her, 2,000 years ago, Jesus took the full impact of the truck of death. He took the hit so that you and I, because of the cross, only have to experience the shadow of death. We only have to experience the shadow. Death, 1 Corinthians 15 says this, is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Is a question. Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But the sting of death has been drawn because of the cross. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, as we close, when Adam sins, he experiences fear. He hides in the first garden of Eden, right? He hides for the fear enslaving him. In another garden called Gethsemane, the roles are reversed, aren't they? Judas and the high priests now come looking for God. They don't know that Jesus is God, but they come looking for Jesus. Adam hid, didn't he, when God comes looking for him. Now when Judas and the high priest come looking for him, what does Jesus do? Jesus steps out and says, I am he. And they all fall back. Because where fear and slavery began, now liberation and freedom is being birthed because Jesus is the victor. I wonder what you think is the most miraculous thing in the Bible. Okay? You might think the incarnation, Jesus being born as a baby. You might think Easter Sunday being an empty tomb. But I wonder if the most miraculous, amazing thing in the Bible is that Jesus, who's the author of life, the beginner, the eternal son, lies or hangs dead on a cross. That the eternal source of life would give up life. Why does he do that? Because Jesus knows out of death is born life. Now, I just want to say, if you know you're here today and you just think, I don't know God, I need to come home to him, or you're a Christian, but you're just enslaved by fear, here's what you have to do. You have to do what Jesus did. Okay? You have to come to the cross. It's not good enough just to spectate or to think, that's an interesting message, I, I, kind of, I find it quite interesting. It, you have to come to him. You have to come to the cross. Something of you has to die for new life to come. If you want to experience freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, if you want to get free from fear, you have to come to him and lay your life down before him. Jesus says this in Luke 9, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Let's stand together. We're going to pray.
Let's have the band back up. Okay. Let's just close our eyes. There's power in the cross, right? If you know today that you just have sensed God speaking to you, there's something of what I've said that you feel like God was speaking to you in that, particularly maybe where you feel I'm held or controlled by that issue of fear. I want just where you are just to lift your hand before him, just as a way of acknowledging. I'm not going to pull you out or anything like that. I just want you to lift your hands. And I'm just going to pray for the power of the cross and the truth of these words to, to, to land in your hearts. Jesus, we thank you that you're here by your spirit right now. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the utter victory of the cross and that we get to live in the light of what you've done. And I want to pray for everybody in this room right now who's standing before you saying, yeah, that's me. That's where I am. I want to pray, God, that your power, your convicting, gracious word would bear fruit in their lives now. Where people are fearful, God, I pray that your word would bring freedom. Come by your spirit, we ask. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.